So, hi, this is Joanna, and it's a beautiful day today in New Mexico, and uh, I'm on the phone with Tim Ward. Some of you might remember I had the pleasure of interviewing him about three years ago, and here we are together again. Tim is the author of four books, Savage Breast, One Man's Search for the Goddess, Arousing the Goddess, Sex and Love in the Buddhist Ruins of India, where he first encountered the goddess, and What the Buddha Never Taught About Life in a Thai Monastery, and the great dragon fleas, his search for living bodhisattvas. He has lectured in colleges and institutions across North America, and all of his books have been used as texts in various schools and universities. Tim has a degree in philosophy from the University of British Columbia in his native Canada. Tim now lives in Bethesda, Maryland, with his wife and their two children, where he teaches communication courses for international development organizations in Washington, D.C., and globally. So, Tim, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, you wrote this book, Savage Breast, about encountering the goddess and understanding the meaning of the feminine and feeling the feminine in yourself. Is this helping you in your marriage? Oh, absolutely. I don't think I would be married today, and certainly not married happily, if I hadn't gone through that long journey to really understand the, uh, the, the sacred feminine and the history of the goddess and what it means to, about my own relationships with women and every man's archetypal relationship with, with women. Uh, I should say that uh, uh, this is uh, it's my, my second marriage now. My first marriage blew up in good part because I really had all of these unconscious and unresolved issues to do very much with the, the feminine. Now, it's, uh, these days, especially anybody who's uh, uh, read any psychology or ever been through therapy, it's practically a truism that uh, you tend to fall in love and marry your opposite parent with whom you have unresolved <laughs> issues. And certainly, there were so many unresolved issues from my own you know, childhood and my own um, uh, things with my, my mother that I ended up trying to solve in my marriage. Everybody does that, male or female. It's it's one of the things that we just seem to have to have to work through. But for me, my first marriage was so miserable that I ended up really sort of thinking it was impossible to have a good relationship afterwards. And I spent some time as a, a rather unhappy um, person, thinking that you know I was really too flawed for a relationship and that they were too difficult. And, for me, one of the real gifts in exploring the goddess and her history on Earth, her story on Earth, was uh, healing that part of myself, which I had really walled off, and being able to really love openly and, and fully and receive love, too, was one of the gifts that the goddess gave me, both in my journey to find her directly and also 
So let's linger for a little bit on one man's search for the goddess. I've read that um, you are a spiritual journalist. So uh, would you give us an account of this encounter? this really as I was coming to terms with the fact that my relationship with this woman who I loved was really fraught with, let's say, ghosts, and that those ghosts were feminine archetypes who I was afraid of. I had an unconscious awareness of that was driving my relationship into you know, painful places, and for me becoming conscious and aware of those archetypal relationships. Uh, was a healing path. And, you know, uh, uh, for, for me, the way that I try to better understand the world is I just go and I search. And so to write this book, I made 13 trips to Europe, to the cradles of civilization where the goddess was once worshipped. And I tried to figure out what it would be like for men living in the time of the goddess to have this relationship with the sacred feminine, with the archetypes of the feminine, that was a conscious and uh, real part of their life as opposed to something pushed into the unconscious, pushed into a God-only society which only had uh, female archetypes living in the, in the shadows or, or in sort of stunted, idealized patriarchal forms like, uh, uh, like, like Mary, uh, the virgin mother, the virgin mother being the two accepted ones and then anything to do with female sexuality was sort of pushed into the dark confident that at this time, so to speak, the goddess is rising again. I'm thinking about uh, 
the nuclear power situation. I'm thinking about the oil spills. I'm just thinking that um, perhaps these are uh, results of uh, the patriarchy and and that our, our great hope might be that the goddess is rising. You know, I, I see it like this. I think the goddess is fully present, operating, filling this earth with abundance. The question is, is our awareness of her rising? Yes. If our awareness of her is rising and we can move in harmony with her rhythms, then we as humans will live a richer, deeper, more pleasant life. Um, if we refuse to recognize her, she also has her own dark side, right? Uh, humans can't kill or even harm the goddess. Hmm. But if we become a threat to Earth, then through climate change uh, and uh, the, 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 the horrors that climate change may bring to this planet in terms of famine, war, drought, uh, you know, these things will destroy much of humanity. And the, we can either move in harmony with the Earth or the Earth can cleanse herself of our damaging influence. But even if we seriously uh, pollute, destroy the atmosphere, the Earth has hundreds of millions of years, right? Yeah. She will totally recover from us. It's our lives that we need to be concerned and, uh, and aware for, the lives of the other beings on the planet who we can harm. So that's, that's how I see it, you know. Not, uh, not, uh, not that we are protectors of Earth, but we are the children of Earth and how we choose to live on her and in her um, is our karma and, and our fate. So back to your original question, is the goddess rising? I think that for many people, an awareness of the sacred feminine and the rhythms of the goddess is indeed rising. I think the entire environmental movement, whether consciously or not, is one that is recognizing the rhythms of the power of life on this planet. And that, to, to me, is almost synonymous with the, uh, the goddess. So, yes, there's a much greater awareness. Uh, on the other hand, our numbers are such and our consumption, our greed is such, that um, we may bring those, those, those cycles to, uh, uh, to a destructive force. this and uh, I love the call to responsibility so um, I want to ask you uh, how do you practice the responsibility that we have and um, how can you share with people how we can we can be responsible in um, nurturing ourselves yes I love the way you framed that question 
how can be we be responsible for nurturing um, ourselves and and our our shared communal life on on this planet? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd like to answer that in three in three ways, and that is our connection to the planet as a whole, our connection to our local communities and living communities, and then our connection to our our individual selves. And I'll try to do it concisely. One thing that's amazing about us at this time as a species is we really have a sense of the planet as this globe, this beautiful blue drop mm-hmm. in space that no other civilization has ever had. In the past, we've seen the world as all that there is. You know, with the sky sort of as a roof over all that there is. So our perception of ourselves and the finiteness, the limitedness of Earth is something new for human beings. And as we, over generations, really take this in, and things like Google Earth make it easy, you know, pictures of the Earth from the moon make it easy, mm-hmm. we can't come to see that we are in a drop of living water. And we can't pollute that drop. It's not vast and endless. It's finite, and it's a system that we have to be careful not to damage and destroy if we want to live an abundant life on it. So this, this, the ground, the fertile ground for this awareness is there amongst us humans. Um, we have to really make it a value that becomes a global value, just as human rights is a global value. We need to have, in a sense, um, uh, biological, planetary, ecological rights as something essential. And that won't really take root very well if it's seen as something separate and other and in a sense lesser than human beings, which is one of the reasons to me that being able to connect with my earth as the goddess, you know, to see these forms that are the the cycles, the rhythms of life, this is a sacred presence that I am living in the midst of and I am part of. choose with a greater sense of, of 
only given you two of those three dimensions, uh, Joanna, but maybe I better stop there. <laughs> oh, no, I'd like to hear the third. I I just think that these, uh, these practical points are uh, really important. Okay, so the third, the third one is, of course, your relationship with yourself. And uh, here's where you know, each individual must find their, their own way. But um, for me, I believe that the way we in the West have come to conceptualize the individual human being is a way that can lead us easily into greedy, destructive, and violent patterns. Because we have made the individual self the center of our, our, our world. Not just individually, I am the center of my world, but also ideologically. We praise individualism in American culture. We want to raise our consciousness, uh, develop our self-esteem, um, uh, make it to the top of the pile, be able to say, I'm king of the world. These things are all seen as real virtues in, in America. And for much of the rest of the world, that's, it's, it's, that's not even seen as a, as a virtue. And, and although I think there are things about the individual that are beautiful, when you only value the individual, you end up in the delusion that the individual is somehow a hard, real indivisible thing like the an atom is well you know we've learned that atoms are far from solid little things that compose all of matter we've learned that atoms are actually very fuzzy hard to define bits of electrons that are whizzing in and out and 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 are connected to fields of, of energy that there really is no thing that's an atom that you could put in a jar and cut it off from other things right so we've learned that atoms aren't single things so too we as individuals aren't single things. We're always intimately connected with human culture, which gave us language and thought. Without it, we'd have no ideas in our head. And with the biological systems that surround us, you know, the food, the air, the water that we take in, the fact that we have hundreds of millions of tiny organisms living in our, in our body. I, I not too long ago met an earth scientist who specializes in microbes, and he told me that if you actually took a human body and ground up all the DNA in that human body. Only 5% of the DNA in the human body is human. Hmm. The rest is microbes. Ah. <laughs> wow. So even our very sense of what we are is, uh, I think, in, uh, out of line with the reality of our huge interconnectedness with all of life. So if we could really see ourselves not as a thing, moving through a material universe, but as an interpenetrating field of energy and awareness, which is with every single movement interconnecting with all that there is around us. And that we will definitely die. One of these things the Buddhists do so well. Death is in some ways the center of their religion. You must accept, acknowledge, prepare for and embrace your death. To then try to get as much as you can for yourself doesn't make any sense. Mm. All you can do is try to help the patterns of life flow in ways that are more harmonious. So that would be the third level for me. 
Thank you, Tim. So that uh, uh, very naturally brings me to ask you about your book, What the Buddha Taught. This year is the 20th. What the Buddha Never Taught. <laughs> What the Buddha Never Taught. Um, this year is the 20th anniversary of uh, the publication of your book. And um, so would you, would you tell us about this uh, physical and spiritual travelogue that you wrote? Yes. What the Buddha Never Taught was my uh, very first book. I, I wrote it when I was 26 years old. It was published when I was 32. And it is about the time I spent living in a Buddhist monastery in a jungle in Thailand. This is a unique monastery because it was run bilingually in both English and Thai. About half the monks were Westerners, half the monks were Thai. So it was a great experience of living the true Thai Buddhist life, but without having to spend the years it would take to learn the Thai language. And for me, um, one of the most profound things about it was having to live in a Thai jungle in harmony with the other inhabitants of the forest, mm. which included scorpions, tarantulas, poison centipedes, cobras, not to mention mosquitoes, ants, all the other things that live in the jungle. And we were explicitly instructed to not kill any living thing, but to honor the life of each living thing. So we, we shared the forest with us. And uh, that was a tough discipline at times to follow. But what it really did was it challenged my notion that there are such things as living beings that are threats to human life. Ugh. Right? And to me, the moment, which is really a life-changing moment, was when I was walking along the jungle path with an armload of laundry, and I disturbed a cobra in the path. Mm. And it reared up about uh, two yards away from me. You know, it's, it's, it's head coming up in a flattened hood about level with my chest. Now, a cobra can run can smooth faster than a man can run. So if it had wanted to strike me, there is absolutely nothing that I could have done to prevent it. It couldn't have run away. You know, it could have gotten me. But I did what we were taught to do in the monastery, which is when you have an encounter with an animal, to just be very still and very calm. And so I did that. And the snake was sort of up for about, you know, 10 seconds or so looking at me. And then I could see it so it relaxed. Is it realized there's no threat to me. Mm-hmm. And then it just, it, it, it dropped its head and slithered back along the path and disappeared into the forest. And I really got it. The nature's not out to get me. Mm-hmm. You know, if I step on something, it will bite me or sting me, perhaps. But if I'm fitting in with its world and respecting its space, it doesn't really wish me any harm. Now, that's not saying that, you know, to mosquitoes I don't show up as food. Certainly I do. And, Uh, you know, in the end, uh, we're eaten by worms. So in some sense, yes, we will indeed be consumed by the rest of nature. But if we live in fear of nature and seeing nature as pests, vermin, threats, from a Buddhist point of view, we've actually set our world against ourselves. Mm. Right? If you see things out there and out to get you, but from the Buddhist point of view, you see all the world, the projection from your own mental awareness, then you are a house set against itself. And you'll carry that antagonism inside your own spirit. And life will be a struggle. So that to me was one of the key things 
Mm-hmm. So, um, setting the world against ourselves, um, is that related to this um, divide to conquer, which has um, which which has motivated us to live in violence? And what can be the cure to violence? When violence is um, is a reaction born of anger and fear, then in, in, indeed it becomes uh, it becomes a problem. I mean, I mean, let's face it: the world that we live in is indeed one where there is violence. You know, well, we eat each other every place up and down the food chain mm-hmm. to survive. So that that means. Um, animals kill other animals. Animals eat animals eat eat plants. The sort of creative destruction of nature involves a certain kind of violence. But what human beings have done is they've managed to perpetuate violence for a whole different set of reasons than the sort of natural violence of the world. And then we've been able to do it at a really grand, dramatic, terrifying scale. Wow. Uh, that becomes self-replicating. In the face of violence, one becomes afraid, one becomes angry, and one commits violence back. And then you just have a, uh, a ping-pong ball going back and forth, back and forth, and all that ricocheting just magnifies things and draws draws more people, more and more people into it. Um, the idea that we as an individual may have with violence is if I could just uh, beat back my opponent or kill the thing that's threatening me, mm-hmm. then I'll be safe or I'll win. But of course, because we're one big, huge, interconnected, interrelated system, when you commit an act of violence, you merely set a chain reaction into play that bounces back on you and bounces out to, like a, like a ripple in a pond, bounces out all over the place. Uh, let me give you one political example of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the really difficult wars that America has found itself in in, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, in, especially in that part of the world, um, have been made worse when civilians are killed by American or NATO soldiers. Mm-hmm. Especially in those parts of the world, there's very strong honor codes about revenge. Right. So if somebody is killed, it's up to others to avenge them. Mm-hmm. So if a NATO bomb explodes and kills someone who's innocent. It's not that one person who's been affected. It's all the relatives of that person who now are, are by their honor code, sworn to avenge their death against the armies of, of NATO and the United States who are supposed to be there to free these, free these people. Mm-hmm. So one death creates anger, the need for vengeance, more, um, more death. I, I hope this is making uh, yes. some sense. Yes, a lot. This is, to me, where human violence, because it's based on this false idea that you can get rid of the problem through violence, uh, that's where we really need to take a deep look at what we think we're accomplishing because we're not seeing the further implications of each act. Hmm. Hmm. Tim, um, what is it that the Buddha never taught? Uh, and the thing that has fascinated me, Joanna, is uh, 
chapters in this book is called What the Buddha Never Taught. And the answer to that question is in that chapter, in the center of the book. It's not something that I can easily explain. It's <laughs> sort of a, uh, a deep realization that came out of a lot of struggle and um, uh, uh, a, a, lot of, a lot of questioning. But what I noticed is, over the years, many different people have come up to me and told me what they think the Buddha never taught. Oh. is revealed in this book. And people have come up with some interpretations of the title that I had never considered, but are very wise and very thoughtful interpretations. So I've actually learned a lot about my experience of living in this monastery through other people telling me what the meaning of my book title is to them. Uh-huh. And so for that reason, I'm hesitant to say what I think what the Buddha never taught really means. I invite people to read the book and find out what that means for themselves. And the only other thing I'll say is that if that answer is the actual meaning of what the Buddha never taught, the sense that we have to find things up for ourselves. Well, um, this is great, and I encourage our good listeners to um, go to Amazon and order the book and uh, find out. So, and or go to your website and order the book, right? Yes, they can, uh, they can do that, but it's way better to do it through Amazon. If you want the new Canadian edition, it's available only in Canada. So if you went to Amazon.ca, they could send it to you even if you didn't live in Canada. Great. So, Tim, um, let's... Um, Talk a little bit about your uh, upcoming book. Um, I love you sent me a chapter of the book and I love the description of your son uh, with his wide and trusting smile. Um, Well, please talk about zombies on Kilimanjaro. Before we before we started the interview, I was saying I have a little trouble with the word zombie. So, tell us about that. Sure. Um, last uh, summer, my son, who's now 20 years old, Joshua, and I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro together. It's the fourth tallest mountain in the world and the highest freestanding mountain in the whole planet. Um, there are taller mountains like Everest, but they're part of the Himalayan mountain chain. In other words, you start off at a pretty high elevation. Kilimanjaro rises out of the African savanna up uh, to uh, six, six kilometers high. And it's just an amazing thing to, uh, to look at with its snow-capped glaciers, this huge, giant volcano um, that dominates the landscape and has created this green oasis in the middle of a, of a vast desert. So we went to this uh, this amazing I- iconic mountain and uh, and climbed from the from the bottom to the top. Uh, the thing that might immediately spring to some reader's mind is the, the the old biblical notion of the father and son climbing the mountain that you see in the story of Abraham mm-hmm. and Isaac. And indeed, this book is in some ways the counterweight to Savage Breath, my exploration of the goddess and the sacred feminine. This is my this is my book, not only about masculinity and what it is to be a man, but because it's ultimately the story of a father and his adult son and what it means when a boy becomes a man and how that changes the relationship 
energy and faster fields of, of energy. So we get into all of that. It's a sort of a philosophical walk up to up Kilimanjaro. I like to compare it uh, to that, that great book, Ben and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, uh-huh. which is uh, also a father and son trip, a, a trip that he and the Robert Percy and his son made across America. So this, to me, is uh, the, the 21st century update of uh, a similar kind of conversation in a very different terrain. Well, you see, it's interesting because... Um I've thought for a long time that uh, the story of uh, Abraham, um, that the problem resides in Abraham reaching towards God instead of reaching towards the child and the earth, which kind of could tie in with uh, the touching the earth idea of the Buddha. So I was wondering if that wakes up some comments and thoughts in you. Yes. Um, and thank you for the question, Janet. It's, it's very thoughtful and is making me think. To me, the old patriarchal climbing the mountain is to head towards the realm of God, the sky god, you know, Zeus, Jehovah. Uh, and uh, that that's where you're closest to God because you're up on a mountain. Mm-hmm. To me, my actual experience of Kilimanjaro was very different. The mountain itself was just rooted in the earth, and I found myself more connected to the to the planet, mm. uh, to the literally to the geological wonder of the place that we live on. This, this huge mountain is a volcano; it's entirely formed by lava. The movement of the earth's crust along the Great Rift Valley that separates the uh, plate over the Indian Ocean. African plate. Mm. And uh, in a sense, the mountain to me becomes a living thing during this during this climb, and a living thing with a story to tell. The glaciers on top of Mount Kilimanjaro are almost 12,000 years old, and scientists have bored uh, columns uh, of the ice all the way down to the bottom, and by taking those columns out and analyzing the little tiny pockets of air all through that column, they can learn the story of East Africa for the last 12,000 years in terms of what its weather was like, which is, of course, incredibly valuable when it comes to looking at the impacts of climate change. How do we know what our climate was like 10, 12,000 years ago? Mm-hmm. Well, glaciers hold the record, the story of what the climate was like. So uh, Kilimanjaro glaciers are incredibly valuable archives to us in understanding of our planet on a scale that humans have never attempted to understand before. And of course, one of the, the things that makes this urgent is the glaciers are melting very quickly on Kilimanjaro due to climate change. So we want to take these records and learn from them literally before they melt away under our, uh, under our eyes. Mm-hmm. So in this way, through Kilimanjaro, I'm finding a deeper connection to the Earth. Mm-hmm. Perhaps uh, what the Buddha never taught is uh, really how to touch the earth. Um, somebody gave me a beautiful answer on an interview. Susan Griffith, I asked her 
um, how can we connect with the earth? And she said, uh, we are the earth. Our bodies are the earth. So, may I ask you about your relationship with your son after this journey? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, one of the, the, the sort of archetypal themes that fathers and sons tend to have is uh, this necessity of a son breaking away from the father. Uh, in, in patriarchy, the son is supposed to be obedient, and in fact, many of the Bible stories are about obedient sons, like uh, Isaac and, and Abraham. Mm-hmm. But if you look into the, the old pagan myths and the, the other archetypes of father and son that there, there are, there are often stories of the son needing to kill or wound or separate himself from the father. Right. So you see in classical mythology stories of uh, uh, Cronus, and sending him away from uh, from Earth, you see um, Zeus in turn uh, defeating Cronus, so that Zeus becomes the leader of the gods. You've got all these stories like uh, like this. Even Oedipus, who kills his father, is uh, a reflection of this archetype. We see it most recently in, in movies like uh, the Star Wars uh, yeah. series, in which Luke Skywalker has to defeat and uh, and and uh, and ultimately. you so much for uh, um, this uh, glimpse into uh, the intimacy between your son and you and uh, and also speaking about this special relationship fathers and sons I feel like asking you Tim Ward um, what are you thinking about at the moment what is most interesting to you Right now. Right now? Um, right now, there are things happening in my, uh, the other part of my professional career, which is actually bringing so much of my spiritual and global commitments into the part of my life that's my day job where I earn my, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we're working with a very large environmental organization to help them become really world-class communicators so that the important things that people don't really know or understand about the loss of species through extinction caused by human behavior, um, global climate change and, and, and what it means, and the ways in which how we as individuals consume and purchase products feed into these cycles, either in ways that are destructive or creative. Um, so we're working with this organization to help them find ways to catch the, the fire, of, to catch human imaginations on fire for mm. the possible world that we can create in which all of humanity finds a way to live in balance and harmony with nature. And the, the, the exciting thing for me, Joanna, is it is possible. We have today all the technology and all the science we need to provide for an adequate life for all of humanity that does not destroy and eat the living cycles that replenish the, 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 the fields, the trees, the, uh, the, the animals, the fish in the sea. Right now we are chewing these up at such a rate that we will end up with uh, barren seas, deserts, mm-hmm. and, and treeless landscapes for once there were rainforests. So we need to move these cycles from these destructive paths towards ones that are lasting and replenishing mm-hmm. for the whole, the whole planet. And we can do it. That's the real good news. But it will mean big change. It will mean every individual doing their part to bring humanity into alignment with the cycles of the goddess. Mm-hmm. That is exciting me because it's an opportunity to do this on a scale that really can have some planetary impact. This is probably the most important uh, work there is. Um, accountability and responsibility. I should just send your, your, any of your listeners who are, are really interested in this. The organization is the World Wildlife Fund. There are many others that are working on similar issues. But this one organization, because of its global reach, the fact that they have autonomous offices in so many different countries in the world, and they have a strategy which is both local, preserving what each nation needs to preserve, and global, finding ways that we can buy products from China. Uh, you know, we can you know take our fish from the Pacific Ocean, but the cycles will still work and sustain us all. Uh, they're doing this global work really masterfully, and it's really our privilege to be doing some of it with them. Thank you so much, Tim. Uh, This has been really, really wonderful. And um, I'd like to ask you, take your time and tell us what you'd like to say in closing. So in closing, Joanna, for for all of your listeners, who uh, I have to say, as you and and I are speaking, I am aware of them listening in Mm. on, on our
literally every act that we take to bring our own lives into balance and better bring the planet's life into balance, that too has a ripple effect. Others see it in our lives. Or if we are at a restaurant and we say, um, I don't know that the tuna has been caught wisely, so I won't order the tuna. Mm. You know, give me the veggie burger. Mm-hmm. And whatever the choice is, if it's a conscious choice and it's vocalized, others hear that conscious choice. And that spreads through the same sort of ripple effect. You know, every single act of picking up something, a thing of litter, or choosing not to carelessly just buy a water bottle because you don't want to have the, the plastic waste in, in, end up in the Pacific Ocean, all these little choices mm-hmm. are what will change the planet and make it a place that will be green in 50 years, that will be a beautiful place for our children to have it, where they will all enjoy the abundance of the goddess. But that's my vision, which I feel your, all of your listeners sharing with me throughout our conversation. And uh, I want to have my life be one that helps make that world of abundance last for all of us. Thank you so much for being with us today, Tim. consider supporting our work by making a tax-deductible contribution online at futureprimitive.org.